0: i don't want to be at the bottom that just doesn't make sense for me (laughs) so the race to the bottom and price competing with something like plastic wrap which is just nothing like a bego at all Mm -hmm. it wasn't a logical decision to make it actually wasn't smart for i could never price compete with plastic wrap because the materials i use are natural and they're Mm -hmm. valuable they don't can't be priced like plastic
1: Welcome back to the Revenue Model and Pricing podcast series Inside Her CEO Journey. Last week, we started the series with an audio version of a webinar we did in collaboration with Boom Startup Accelerator. The webinar was hosted by yours truly, Christina Shahli, and Tara Spalding, the director of Boom Startup. In the first episode of this series, you'll learn the six key components of the right revenue model and how you can translate those six components into the right financial model and grow your business in a sustainable manner. You're listening to Her CEO Journey, the business finance podcast for mission-driven women entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Christina Shahli. If you are new here, a big, warm welcome. If we are not connected on LinkedIn, please reach out and say hi because that's where I hang out and share my business finance tips. If you have been listening to this podcast for a while and you are a regular listener, I want you to know I appreciate you. My podcast won't be around without your support. This is a free weekly show where my guests and I want to inspire you to balance between mission and profit, to create an impact in this world, and to achieve financial equality through your business for good. Starting from today's episode and over the next few weeks, we are discussing pricing and unit costs. Today's episode is a rerun episode from 2020. Tony DeRossier, the founder and CEO of Abigo, Canada's first certified B Corporation for the plastic-free wrap. Not only Tony has created an awesome product, her philosophy of never racing to the bottom in terms of pricing is also what makes Abigo successful as a social impact business. Identifying and articulating the revenue model will help you better manage your company's growth and also establish metrics that match the approach. However, without the right pricing structures and understanding of the unit costs your revenue model won't result in profitability. If you are wondering what is missing from your current revenue model, or if you have the right pricing structures that allows you to grow a profitable and sustainable business, connect with us at theprofitreimaginecom forward slash Let's Chat, and our fractional CFO can help you. Now, let's find out Tony's CEO journey. Tony De Rosier, welcome to her CEO journey. You started Abigo probably close to eleven years ago. Uh yeah, I think this is my twelfth year. I started in two thousand eight. Oh. Can you share your journey? Why did you wanna create Abigo?
0: So I am a really inventive person. I love solving problems. I actually quite love a problem because I know that the end of the problem is an opportunity. And for me, I thought that plastic wrap was just the dumbest invention on the planet really and it's not because it's not even because of the environmental aspect because that wasn't mm-hmm. a conversation in 2008 it's because it is simply a terrible product to use getting it <laughs> out of the box off of the roll and around anything you're trying to store is near impossible there isn't a single person that relishes the moment they have to pull plastic wrap out of the box whether you recognize it or not you do not like using that product and it i feel like it just hit a it hit a crossroads for me when I started studying nutrition, I became Mm -hmm. a holistic nutritionist. I identified my food as fresh and alive. And then I looked at this food wrap and I thought, wait a second, it's airtight. How does that support my fresh alive food? So that was kind of the first, the first, like that was along the same lines. Plus it just is a terrible product to use. So I didn't want to use it anymore. I thought there must be an easier way to wrap my food than struggling with that product.
1: Mm -hmm. And then, so how did you figure out that you want to use beeswax.
0: When I invented a bigo, I set five rules for myself because I didn't know what it was going to be made out of. But I knew if it was made out of natural materials that behaved more like a skin peel or rind, it was just going to be a more food-friendly product. I just had a Mm. sense of that. So I studied how we preserve things in the past. I looked for natural materials that hadn't been chemically altered. They had to be plastic free. They had to be on the FDA list for food contact. They had to be readily available. So I kind of like created this framework for myself first. And then within that framework, I started investigating materials that would be sticky and, and flexible and moldable. And beeswax, tree resin, and home oil just turned out to be the absolute magic combination.
1: Mm. But how did you even try it? So what did you do first when
0: you were about to create your first product or your first task? The very first thing I did was Pulled some random fabric out of my, my kitchen and poured some beeswax on it. And it was an awful, awful, awful product. <laughs> <laughs> Why is it awful? Because it's just, it's just the smell? <laughs> well, no, the smell is amazing, but it was just like it didn't have. How do I explain this? I was looking to make a product that stored food longer in plastic wrap and behaved in the convenience way we wish plastic wrap would work. Right, like we wish plastic wrap would just form and shape around our food with little little struggle. That was my guiding point. I knew it had to be different material wise, but it still had to have that same convenience. So beeswax, just on its own in fabric, is just going to crack and peel, and it doesn't have the, the the flexibility that you need.
1: So after your first test, then when did you realize? Okay, after how many years or how many months that you realized? Okay, I can produce this and how was the story to find somebody to make it or did you do it your own?
0: I did it myself. So an interesting, it's funny that we're talking right now when we're kind of like watching the world slip into recession. I started a yeah. bigo in 2008, which was the global recession. Yes. You know, I, I experimented with different materials and ingredients and formulas for about three months before people closest to me started buying the product. And that's when I Started finding market, like a market for it, which was just local farmers' markets at the time. But I had to build it myself. Because I invented it, there wasn't a machine that could make it. I couldn't tool up a factory to get it going. And there was no financing available. Like the recession, there was nothing for anybody. So I had $1,200 in, on, in a credit card. And that's how I started Abigo.
1: Wow, $1,200. And then what did you use it for? First, I'm, I'm assuming like creating the product.
0: And well, I used it for buying the raw materials. So I was like, I'm like a pretty true bootstrap business. I I realized early, if I wanted to have money to fund my business, I needed to sell my product. So I started making a few and selling them and making a few and selling them and continuously use the profits to invest more and more into my own business.
1: So when you say you bootstrap it, you basically started with 1200 and then you have nobody at the time. You're doing it all, all on your own. No
0: employees, is it? No, my mother would help occasionally, and my husband would help as well. But no, it was just it was. But keep in mind, when I started Abigo, I was only selling forty of them a week. There wasn't a market for it, right? (laughs) So going back to two thousand eight, yes, there wasn't the environmental conversation we're having today, and there wasn't the plastic-free conversation that we're having today, and it and people weren't banging down my door to buy a new food wrap. So it was a slow organic growth in the beginning. And
1: then, so how long does it take you from that beginning
0: to a point
1: where you know you can have a company that disrupt the industry, one, and also it's profitable and then, you know, maybe support your lifestyle? How long does it take you?
0: I feel like that didn't really happen for me until around 2015. So it was a really long time. What was the challenges during that time though? We have a lot of really preconceived notions about what it means to invent something and bring it to the market and blow it up, right? Like we Mm -hmm. all see these brilliant unicorn companies, but for Mm -hmm. every brilliant unicorn companies, there's like 100,000 amazing ideas that never Mm -hmm. see the light of day because the market isn't ready for them. And that's that was just the case for Abigo. In 2008, I knew Abigo would be a massive idea in the future, but the market wasn't ready. So good ideas... Do not become viable until they intersect with a ready market. You can fight as long as you want, but a good idea and a, and a ready market is when products take off, in my opinion. Between 2008 and 2018, or 15, I had a full production facility and I had employees, and we were making the product in, you know, in a very handcrafted way, and we were investing in new equipment and innovating in our space and continuously growing in a really sustainable way. We weren't making huge, huge revenue, but we were doing quite well for the state of the company for sure.
1: You have your own warehouse and then after that, you you also have to purchase equipment and then you have employees. How do you fund
0: that? This is an interesting topic because where I find myself today in like this COVID pandemic state where you know, businesses around me are just collapsing. I realized that I had some really early intuition around how I wanted to grow a business that is saving me today. And the reality was I did it through profit. I made sure that my product had a good profit margin. And then I continuously reinvested that product or that profit to continue to grow the business. So did it mean that I had to move a little bit slower in the earlier years? Absolutely. But Mm. in today... I'm, I'm protected, I'm funded, I'm self-funded. I have a profitable business that allows me to continue to grow sustainably and weather an incredible storm.
1: What do you think in terms of understanding your finance, in terms of balancing between profit and making an impact, how do you do it, Tony?
0: I think they go hand in hand, to be honest. I do not relate to the idea that if you are going to be a a company for social good, Mm -hmm. that you shouldn't make a profit at all. I think it's quite the opposite. I think if you want to change the world and you want to have a positive impact on your community and your province and your country and the greater world, you want to think about building a profitable business because a profitable business has funds to invest outside of itself in a greater sense. How do you look at your financial information? I would, you know, do like my profit and loss and review my balance sheet. And I had like a pretty rudimentary cash flow projection because I had to, I had very little cash. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I really only had to project like two months out because that's when the cash would be gone. But I would, I always just looked at it from a costing perspective. I feel like a lot of times when businesses start out, young with a new idea and a new product, they don't price it properly. They don't price it for sustainability and they don't price it for scalability. So in my case, I priced go from day one at the price that I, that I knew when the market was ready to accept it, it was going to be a good price. I knew it gave me margin to allow for my B2B partners my my retail partners i allowed there for a margin for distributors even though i didn't have distrib- distributors at the time i just made sure i priced in my scalable my scalability plan from the beginning and the benefit of doing that in the early days of abigo was that it cost me a lot of money to make abigo in the early days. But then, as I improved my production processes, my cost of goods and my direct labor costs started to decrease, which allowed me the space to start bringing in my retail partners and my distribution partners. So I was very strategic in the early days. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, I'm assuming here that when you price your product, you basically taking your costs, every single cost that you have, and then also you added profit margin.
0: Yes, absolutely. I added a profit margin and I, I made sure that I, I worked it back from the cost that I believed the customer could, could accept. And then I worked it backwards to my cost of goods. And between those points, I reviewed like if I was going to sell to a retailer they're going to need a 50% margin. If I'm going to sell to a distributor, they're going to need a 35% margin. If I'm going to build a massive production facility, I'm going to need a production margin. And I kind of built all those margins in early. And, and the reality was in the early days of the Bego of building those margins in, I really needed those all to grow because my production processes were so inefficient. But as they became more efficient, it freed up more cash and allowed me to bring on different levels of partnership.
1: In one of your interviews, you said you never uh, believe in race to the bottom. <laughs> which is, I love. Which is, I love. I never heard anybody say that. <laughs> yeah. Especially at the very beginning of your journey. Where did you find that courage? And then also, where?
0: how did you even sell it to the market? I do believe that my decision to never discount bigo from day one has been one of my, the, the strongest pillars of my business. Now that we've been accepted in the market People aren't sitting around waiting for a purchase because they're waiting for the next discount. And for me, I, I had the courage to not race to the bottom because of the exact words, race to the bottom. When you get to the bottom, it's the bottom. I don't want to be at the bottom. That just doesn't make sense for me. <laughs> so the race to the bottom and, and price competing with something like plastic wrap, which is just nothing like a bio at all, it wasn't a logical decision to make. It actually wasn't smart. For A, I could never price compete with plastic wrap because the materials I use are natural and they're yeah. valuable. They're yeah. not, they don't, can't be priced like plastic. And, and the second reason I couldn't race to the bottom was because it was the new idea. And do you know what you need to build a new idea? You need money. So I yeah. couldn't forego the profit of the business to be price competitive because it would have meant I couldn't build the brand or or have the finances, the money to educate the customer about the value of my product. Mm, That is so true. Yeah. So powerful. (laughs) I wish more businesses started out would have that courage, you know, because when we're talking about this discount model, it's not, it's not businesses my size that can afford these discount models. It's really, really, really large businesses. And the costs they have to cut to offer. The consumer, the illusion of a discount is just, it's just unsustainable. It'll, it'll never last.
1: And then I think what you are saying, you know, earlier, you s- probably at the very beginning, right? you The margin is not the greatest, mm-hmm. but as you refine the process, right? As you understand the process better and then you tweak it, you become more efficient. Mm-hmm. The margin becomes better. Mm-hmm. So... I think it's persistence and then also being patient and then also have to have the courage to basically stay to say, "My product is valuable." Mm-hmm. right? And yes, right now, I have to educate people, but I know this is a valuable product, and then people will see it that way in the future. What happened in 2014? I know that you said that 2015, you received funding from CEO, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But prior to receive funding from CEO, I read in um, and listened to your interview, you had to let go some majority of your employees. What happened there?
0: So the year before I got the CEO funding, I was in a an entrepreneurship contest, a young entrepreneurship contest, and I and I got second place. And the second place gave me a $25,000 grant that I could use with the BDC for consulting services. Mm-hmm. So I used those services to work with some of their financial advisors to mm-hmm. secure a $100,000 loan from the BDC, which mm-hmm. was the equivalent of the prize money that I that I could have won. And mm-hmm. so I went into the following year with a sizable loan and I hired people and I thought, you know what, this is it. This is like, I finally have a little bit of money behind a bigo. I'm definitely going to be able to grow this company. And the truth was the market still wasn't ready. So the loan was spent quicker than, than I had hoped. The revenue wasn't coming in to support the team that I had invested in. And I had to lay off, I believe I had laid off eight people at that time. And that was, that was about, Four weeks before being, I'm um, going to the CEO summit, which I would have had to kind of like put my books on display and talk about the success of my business. And, and I knew I just couldn't walk into that environment with kind of like this elephant in the room that I had my, my finances were not going in the direction that they needed to go. I needed to make mm-hmm. a tough decision right there.
1: So you basically decided to let go some of the people. I did. In hindsight, if you go back, right, because you were with a business advisor at the time right you receive 25k as the winner and then you also secure 100k of financing what would you do differently
0: i would have taken it a lot slower in business we're always kind of hustled you know mm-hmm. what i mean like i mm-hmm. always feel like there's someone beside behind me being like you got to move fast you got to move fast but i think mm-hmm. that's an illusion i actually don't think that's true i think what's really important is that you make sure that you have a really strong foundation to leap off from. The Mm -hmm. core Mm -hmm. issue that I was facing at that time was that Abiga really needed to rebrand. That was the most important thing I needed to do at that time. Instead, I hired people to kind of grow the company, which was the wrong move. I should have used the first round of of financing to do the full rebrand of the company, which included all new packaging, photograph, website, just all of the foundational stuff. Because Mm -hmm that, that was what was my bottleneck. My bottleneck was the, the, the look and feel that a had at the time was slowing my production down. And so it was costing me too much money to produce the product. It was creating too much waste. And to get past that, I had to go to the point of having my fabric with a repetitive print. And so that's what I would have changed. I would have spent that first chunk on the rebrand and kind of retooling my, my facility.
1: Were you reviewing your financial process at the time? And then did you find a benefit of reviewing your financial process?
0: Absolutely. I love reviewing my financial process all (laughs) the time. I'm quite obsessed with it. If I didn't have a really clear picture of my cash flow, I probably could have gotten to a really desperate position before I had to lay them off. But I knew that that the, the tipping point, the cliff was coming in advance because I had good cash flow projections at that time. So I was able to do it quick and, and kind of save the company, ultimately.
1: Okay. So what happened at the CEO then?
0: So then CEO is a, for those of you that don't know what CEO is, it's a, mm-hmm. it's a funding model that funds female-led businesses that are working on the world to-do list. So products and, and companies that are really tackling major, major problems and coming up with a solution like a Bego food wrap. Or mm-hmm. you know different products like that, and what they do is they have a activator funded model where many many other women from Canada and U.S. and around the world put a thousand dollars into a fund, and and it grows this particular fund that a certain number of ventures have the ability to draw on as a loan. And I was selected as a venture in 2015, and the loan is a zero interest loan, or zero percent interest loan.
1: I believe that the loan was not assigned by anybody. It's like yep. the collective the the winners, the ventures for that year, I think ten of them right there was actually five ten? of us oh, so the five first year of there you. was only five, yeah, okay, so five of you basically make the made the decision who's gonna get
0: what is that correct? That's correct, yes, so we There was $500,000 on the table and there was five ventures. And they sent us to a retreat where we worked with two world-class coaches to kind of work on some, some business strategy and some kind of like emotional wellness. And then after the two day retreat, they sat us down at a like basically at a kitchen table and the five of us worked out how the money would be divided. And the two rules are, it couldn't all go to one venture and it couldn't be split evenly. Those were really the only two rules. Beyond that, we determined how the funds were divided. And we also never shared who got what share because early, right away, everybody just wanted to know who won, who won, who won. And that's just Mm -hmm. not the model of Shio. It's not about winner takes all. It's about a collaborative Mm -hmm. way of using funds to grow many businesses.
1: So you're saying that nobody knows what each person gets I mean, outside the five people. Is that
0: what you're saying? Outside the five people, the business coaches and Vicky and her financial team. Those are the only people that know who gets which, what percentage of the fund.
1: So the activator basically do have, don't know like what do you get and then what the other ventures get. Yep. They just know that it's $500,000 Canadian in the pot and then that is being divided among the five ventures. Okay, so how important financial information in that whole process? What do you guys use to determine like the amount of money that each of the ventures
0: receive? every venture group kind of develops the process. Our Mm -hmm. process was, you know, we did our first round around the table where everybody did their pitch. So it was like real, like, you know, high energy. This is who I am. This is what I'm doing. This is how I'm changing the world. This is how much money I need to do it. And this is how I'll spend it. We Mm -hmm. went around the table once that way. And it turned out that between the five of us, we thought we needed (laughs) $850,000. There was only 500. (laughs) dollars Okay. So, uh, so we went around the table again and we really discussed everybody's financial outlook, our cash flow projections, our profitability, our debt equity ratio, just like really understanding not only like how much money do you think you need, but how much money can you afford to take on? How much debt can your company actually afford? There are two different things you have to think about with debt. Your company needs to be able to sustain that debt. We had a really, really... Loving the hard conversation about how much money was actually the right amount of money, and was there anything that we could do as a collective that would mean we could kind of source our our resources and our networks to support another venture through a phase without needing cash to do it and then we came hmm. around and we were actually slightly under in the second round we were slightly under five hundred thousand and then we did a third round around the table and we actually at that point, suggested certain ventures who we didn't believe had asked for the right amount of money that had actually undercapitalized their initiatives. We suggested that they take the, the what was left over. Wow. Because there's two, two risks, right? You can take on too much debt that your company mm-hmm. can't mm-hmm. survive, or mm-hmm. you can undercapitalize yourself mm-hmm. and then you can't push your initiative forward.
1: And then you have to find that right balance mm-hmm. because... Like I said before before we get into this recording, like one of the key points in, in terms of financing that I'm always, I'm a big believer in this. Like, you know, when you take money, it doesn't matter, it's zero interest. You still have a responsibility because there is another person on the other side that believe in you, Most right? Definitely. So that your business is going to grow and then you're going to do what you say you're going to do. Right. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's so important for the the person who received the money to understand like, how am I gonna be using this money? And am I asking for the right amount? In hindsight, you know, we never know, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's so many uncontrollable things in this world that <laughs> we have no clue what's gonna happen. But you know, using the best available information at that moment. Know understanding your business, understanding your process, understanding your marketing, then you should be able to know how much you truly need by understanding your financial. That's what I, I believe. Do you find like that is like that was like a strong process
0: in, within the five ventures? We're all on track to pay off our full amount of our loan. There's nobody in my cohort that has defaulted on a loan payment. Everybody in my cohort has grown significantly up until this point where, you know, everything is kind of on the table, but yeah, I think it was a really, really great process that we had. So, you know, we're not bankers, so we didn't take it from a pure numbers perspective. There's, there's a combination of, you know, heart and soul tenacity. Like who do you believe around the table is really going to make that happen? And financial security All three things were considered.
1: I love that. I love that. It's such a collaborative process where everybody's sitting around on the table and then basically said, how much do you need and why do you need it? I also know that you were in the Dragon Dance. I was, yes. (laughs) In (laughs) 2018. So that's gotta be a completely different experience there.
0: Did you go through with the due diligence process? No, I didn't. I chose not to. And there was a few reasons that I chose not to, but I, I didn't do the due diligence process. Can you share the reason? Sure. I think one major reason for it was, well, first off, the the value, the revenue that we stated in the dragistan wasn't actually true at the time that's the that the episode had aired. So Mm -hmm. again, I filmed in early 2015, right before the rebrand. And by the time it aired in 2016, we had grown significantly Ah. from that point, significantly. And then another 300% from that point. So I knew going into the Dragon's Den that my rebrand was going to change so many aspects of my business. And so that valuation wasn't realistic. The second reason Mm. that I I didn't go through with the due diligence was I didn't have the sense that the two investors that had come in together shared the same values Mm. and the same vision. And I think what people need to recognize is that an investor isn't just cash, an investor is a relationship, like it's a deep relationship. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you've got to make sure that the person you're getting into that relationship with is aligned with, with your vision for the company. And in my case, I had two of them and they were not aligned to each other. And I just <laughs> felt like that was going to be a real challenge. <laughs> yes.
1: After that, how did
0: that change your business? After you received, did you rehire the people? In the first year after the Dragon's Den pitch and my rebrand, my company grew 300%. So it was wow. huge. It was a massive, massive year. Uh, the following year, we grew 100% and then another 100%. So we we were on like this pretty intense growth trajectory. And we were able to really handle the growth because we had super strong foundations in place for the business. What is that strong foundation? Well, there's so many things to it, you know. I think if I look back on the rebranding process, mm-hmm. a CEO, by, my my coach at that time was probably a little bit nervous because I knew if I wanted to rebrand the way I wanted to rebrand and I needed to change everything, that it was going to mean kind of like sitting back on revenue for a little while. About six months, I really didn't push sales at all because I wanted to make sure that the brand was. I didn't have to recall all of these products that didn't have the right look anymore. And I didn't want to have to like discount them. So I kind of took that quieter approach for six months and and got my foundation in place uh, foundational things for abigo is our manual we have a foundation manual where all of our especially all of our production processes are all documented we have production reports that we designed and many tools in place to measure like our direct labor costs and our waste management and you know really great like super clear ability to understand our cost of goods and how, or co- sorry cost of goods sold and how that fluctuates over time Mm -hmm. those are some really important foundational stuff great strong financials and rolling forecasts a great cash flow rolling forecast is critical for sure something that you're updating on a monthly basis with your actuals to see what's happening in your business that's a big foundational tool
1: okay and then what else in addition to the
0: finance well a team a great team having a really clear picture of where you want to take the company, and then building the team to go in that direction. Because I find it's quite easy to find really great people. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have a clear picture of where you want them to take you, they could end up taking you in a direction that isn't the right direction for the company.
1: You have a very unique approach in your hiring process. So I believe that one of your promise or what you believe your core value is you want to pay your people a living wage, Mm. right? So
0: what does that mean? I mean, this goes back to the idea of where profitability and social desire meet, right? So from day one of Abigo, I wanted to make sure that no matter what kind of company I built, that the people that worked for me, at the, at the lowest level of the company, everybody is as important as anybody else, but at the kind of the production level, which is usually a low income position, we're being paid a living wage to make the product. And that came from the fact that I struggled to build this company making almost no money for a really long time. So I felt what that felt like to be well below what would be a healthy income for myself. So I always knew that I wanted to do it. I just didn't know when it was going to be possible. And it was last May, I think, that I just I just didn't feel like I could wait any longer for when it was going to make the most sense to move in that direction. And I just made the decision at that point that everybody in my company would earn 20, an hour, which is the living wage in Victoria. And I just felt like I'm going to make this move now and then I'm going to figure it out, figure it out financially. And I, and I did. And it turned out it was actually a really, really positive thing for the company because I had struggled to hire production people in Mm -hmm. Victoria. And a lot of my friends who ran businesses were having troubles hiring, you know, kind of like that low income employee. And it occurred to me that it's hard to find people to work in that for that wage because they can't afford to live if they're making that like a, you know, 15, even $15 an hour is just not enough money. And so I, I'm, we moved to the living wage. We ran our first ad to hire new production workers a few days later, and we had 300 applicants within the first, I think five hours. We had to pull the ads down. We had so many applicants. Wow. So it's uh. not that the workers aren't there. It's just, yeah. they have to make enough money that will allow them, you know, really just the basics. A living wage is not luxurious by any means. It just means they don't have to choose between food and gas or food and childcare or you know, food and sending their kid for extracurricular activities. That's really all a living wage is.
1: And does that mean that you are paying above the hourly rate over in
0: Victoria? Uh, yeah, I think it's a minimum wage in Victoria. I always paid over the minimum wage. I'll just mm-hmm. be clear. I think the minimum wage here is like, 12 dollars an hour or something. Mm-hmm. I was always well above that and now we now the starting wage at, at Abigo is 2050 an hour.
1: So here's again though, here's again, I'm interested to know because you said you just have to make the move, right? But at the same time that is making an impact. How do you balance that between the profit and making an impact? What did you look at and then you just said, "You know what? I just going to do it."
0: Yeah. Well, I reviewed kind of the overall profitability of the company. The the company mm-hmm. ha- has had some cash reserves and had, had been profitable the, the year or two before. And mm-hmm. looking forward, I knew that was going to continue. So that was, I mean, that was the... I didn't, I didn't break it down to like the absolute cost per unit. Like what would this direct labor? I mean, I did, I reviewed it on like what would be the direct labor cost and what would that change for the cost of goods, the product Mm -hmm. and what would that look like? But then I also looked at my sales fix and I looked at if I wanted to support this environment where my employees are paid a living wage, then What aspects of the market do I need to grow the business in? Do I want to grow more in e-commerce? Do I want to make sure that I drive more to my B2B customers? Do I want to focus on, you know, distribution, which has bigger reach but much lower margins? I kind of looked at my sales mix as well to see kind of the trajectory of the company, the goals of the company to understand, to believe that the decision I was making was the right decision.
1: Last two questions. One, if other female entrepreneurs out there Right. They want to do a rebranding. What do they need to think about?
0: That's an interesting question. What would be the strategy? I think you really have to be super clear on why your company exists and Mm -hmm. the niche market that you are going after, especially if you're coming up with something new. You don't have a mass market appeal when you have a a new concept, most Mm -hmm. times. Just have a really clear idea of like who that audience is and what, what would resonate deeply with them and then just try to align it across all of your products and platforms and conversations, like communications. Just try to align it all the way across. If you look at my brand, you'll notice that we are not a plastic wrap alternative. We don't talk about plastic wrap. We don't say like, this is better than plastic wrap because plastic is bad for the environment. We have a really positive pro-food mm-hmm. approach. And that Mm -hmm. has been carefully, carefully crafted because I believe Mm -hmm. there is a future without plastic. So I don't want to be the plastic alternative now and then later be, be, you know, having the same conversation around plastic that's just not relevant anymore. So you have to, I feel like you have to brand yourself for, for the future of where you want your company to go.
1: Has the crisis right now, the coronavirus crisis impacting your business?
0: Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I think, I mean, it must be just impacting so many businesses. We have a fairly good online presence, but Mm -hmm. we also sell to a lot of brick and mortar stores. So when all of those stores had to close their doors, that was a significant amount of revenue for Abigo. It was significant. So we are currently, I, I, again, I had to go through the process of laying off my team, which Mm. second time in my life, having to do that second Mm -hmm. worst day of my life. And I've kept a small kind of skeleton crew that will take us through this period and we will survive it for sure. There's absolutely no doubt that we'll survive it, but it's going to be, you know, my revenue is definitely going to take a dip this year, Mm -hmm. but luckily I don't have any investors to answer to.
1: (laughs) I know that is like a relief, right? Mm-hmm. I, I can only imagine. So are you taking any of the government
0: funding at all, Tony? Yeah, we're looking into the government funding that makes sense for us. Uh, for sure, the wage subsidy would probably be the, the biggest piece for us. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we're we're looking into kind of the application process. We definitely qualify. We've certainly lost more than 30% of our revenue. So the wage subsidy is one area that we're looking at. And then just more than anything, it's just been like talking to my partners about deferrals and like operational cost reduction, anywhere kind of on the P&L where we can reduce costs. That's, we've been very aggressive with that. And to be honest, it needed to be done anyway. We had gotten a little bit too bloated with our expenses and they needed to be reviewed. It was a really good process for us.
1: See, that's interesting because I would hear businesses said that why is it always expenses? Why cannot be anything else? Like why you cannot say that I'm going to increase my revenue or you going to pivot for something that is
0: revenue? Personally, it depends what business you're in, I suppose. For us, we do have the ability to increase our revenue. But I feel like there is a certain timing for a move like that. So in the first few weeks of this COVID pandemic, it was not the time to pour a bunch of money into ads, telling people to buy food wrap. Like there's a certain sensitivity as a business that I think that you have to have in understanding how to communicate to your market. And it's not always sell, sell, sell. Sometimes it's just being like a steadfast friend that they can trust. And our approach was to be quite quiet, especially on the the ad front. And we were more focused on helping people understand how to get the most out of their food, whether they had a bigot or not. So how do you make that fresh food that you're only getting once a week last as absolutely long as possible so that you and your family are protected from having to go out into the, the public? That was really our... Our main approach.
1: The first thing that you do is basically you're going through your expenses and then you're talking to your partners. I'm assuming when you say partners, that is the brick and mortars and then also the suppliers. Like, I, I wonder another thing that I wonder is your supply change. Like, how is that getting
0: impacted? That was the very first thing I did actually was to reach out to my suppliers and secure my supply chain. So I have very, very strong relationships with the people that supply, supply my raw materials Mm -hmm. and they were my first calls. And luckily for me, I have a very good supply chain and I'm secured in that way. Plus I've got a significant amount of inventory right now that can sustain us for some time, even if there was a disruption in my supply chain. So we're sitting in a safe position where that's concerned. And then I reached out to kind of my financial provider. So my my banking, my bank manager, uh, my account manager, those, those type of people just to find out what kind of deferrals were in place and any additional financing that would be available should I need it. So that is a very interesting
1: point that you said, okay, I went to my bank, your financial institution, and then basically talked to them. What are my options, right? There are so many other financing out there you can work with your financial institution and then see what is the best fit you're not looking at it only one option but what are the combination of option and then that is going back i'm assuming that you understand your finance you understand where you stand over the next few months maybe i don't need the money now but definitely i'm going to need the money in two months three months whatever it is right
0: yeah you want to find out what's available to you before you need it right exactly <laughs> Are
1: you looking only short term right now, Tony? Is it only three months or is it you're looking at like six months, 12 months from now?
0: Yes, uh, Yeah, I'm, I'm projecting out what it would look like if we're, we had, we're seeing a reduced revenue for at least 12 months.
1: Perfect. I love that because a lot of people right now are looking at only short term. Tony, thank you so much for being here. Where can people find you?
0: You can find us at abigo.com. Um, We're really active on Instagram. So if you follow along at Abigo on Instagram, we're going to teach you all kinds of ways to extend the life of your food. And that's going to extend your money. (laughs) When you save food, (laughs) you save money. So yeah, yeah, just check us out there.
1: And I absolutely love Abigo. And I use it for my my produce over here. Mm -hmm. And then I need to buy more. Because (laughs) it's just amazing. It's amazing. And I highly, highly encourage people to take this approach because it's just, Tony is right. Like, I mean, even like, uh, avocado. That is like normally become black, like in a day, if you put it in a plastic, yeah. this is like lasted longer than that. It could be like five days, six days. Absolutely. Then it's just stay fresh. <laughs> so anyway, Tony, it's an absolute pleasant to have you here. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, it was great. Thanks a lot, Christina. And that's bring us to the end of another episode. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Her CEO Journey, the business finance podcast for mission-driven women entrepreneurs. When you are ready to grow to the next level and seeking a finance team and a fractional CFO who are all in on your mission and can help you maximize profit to make a bigger social impact, connect with us at theprofitreimagine.com forward slash Let's Chat.